For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keo and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. It is Thursday, November 16th. There's a lot for actors to be excited about in the deal that was just negotiated by SAG-AFTRA that ended the months-long actor strike. 7% wage increase, new residual pool for shows and movies that are hits on streaming, a bunch of other stuff. And if you believe the union and its leaders, Fran Drescher and Duncan Crabtree Ireland, who came on this very show last week, SAG established huge protections against the use of AI by studios that might want to reduce costs by replacing actors using generative AI. But since an 18-page summary of the deal was made public on Sunday, there's been some criticism of the AI portion of the contract. That's kind of to be expected. SAG-AFTRA has about 160,000 members, many of them with very different opinions about this stuff. Even the national board has about 80 people on it. The vote to send the deal to the membership for ratification was 86% in favor, with some dissenters specifically citing the AI issue and what they didn't achieve. There should be no AI, one board member, Anne-Marie Johnson, told Variety this week. Quote, only human beings should be used in what we create for public consumption. Without staving off AI, everything we achieved is for naught. It's a waste of time. Well, the SAG-AFTRA position was never to ban AI. Duncan was pretty clear when he came on the show that trying to stop technology never works. And he and Fran have been doing meetings with the members to explain the deal and what they actually wanted out of the AI language. The goal in this negotiation was to put effective guardrails around it, they say, to make sure actors must give consent to their image and likeness being used both in future content, but also in programs that create so-called synthetic actors, fake actors. And they get paid for it. That's the goal. Some have been more nuanced in their criticism of the deal, saying that SAG left big loopholes that the studios will gladly walk through to save money. And one of those critics is Justine Bateman, who's also been on the show. She's a former SAG board member and was a consultant to the Guild on AI before becoming a pretty vocal critic of the deal. She says actors should approve the deal only if, quote, they don't want to work anymore, if they want to be replaced by synthetic objects that are made by generative AI. Fran Drescher, of course, did not love those comments. She didn't name Justine, but she responded that, quote, naysayers have exploited this momentum of ours to gain a voice for themselves. A little bit of a feud back and forth there. She's warned against members being, quote, poisoned by contrarians. Justine's definitely a contrarian, but there's a real wedge issue here. And with voting ending on December 2nd, I don't think a deal is in danger of not passing. 
But I wanted to have Justine back in here to explain her opposition. I've got my own take here. And we're going to go into some of the details of this contract on the AI issue. Today, it's Justine Bateman, AI, actors, and whether this new union deal is strong enough. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Justine Bateman, a returning champion on the show. She, in addition to being an actor, a writer, producer, an author, she also knows something about artificial intelligence and has been a very active voice, first in advising SAG-AFTRA on how it should approach these negotiations, um, and now a pretty vocal critic of this deal that has been negotiated. So first of all, welcome Justine, welcome back. Hi, Matt, and not an actress. I'm going to get a T-shirt. All right. Well, a, a former actress. I, I, our listeners may have known you initially as being an actress, but you are a former actress. So let's get right into your beefs here, because we had Duncan Crabtree Ireland on the show last week. He walked us through some of the gains in the AI area of the contract that he thought were pretty significant. But you're not a fan. So explain to us in a nutshell what is problematic about this contract when it comes to AI. Well, first, I want to say I have no beef with the leadership. I'm not here to criticize the leadership. I have the same intention I've had for the last nine months, which is just informing people what is about to happen to them. I was saying the same things starting in May, specifically to the actors. And what I said inspired SAG leadership to bring me on as an AI advisor. So those things I was saying in May, I said the same things during all the negotiations. And I was there for all the, the rounds with the exception of the final one. And it, they are the same things I'm saying now. So I have not changed what I have said over the last nine months. Just the reaction to it has changed. Right. Well, you're, you're referring to Fran Drescher and some of the comments she has made that seem specifically... Yeah. It doesn't matter. I have I have no animosity towards any of these people. My goal remains the same. I just want these members and crew members and Teamster drivers, everybody to understand what is happening to them and things they can do when you understand what's happening to you, then you can find ways to put things in your contract that'll mitigate damage to you personally. Okay, so let's talk about that because from the very beginning, SAG has said they are not anti-AI. So the fact that AI is allowed in this contract should not be a surprise to anyone. So take us through what your criticisms are. Well, the biggest one, and this is something I said in the beginning, which that was going to be the most important thing. I said, you don't want these, what I call human-like AI objects to play human characters, taking jobs from human actors. So soccer mom character or something, that's you're going to play that by a human. It's not King Kong or some fanciful character with the head of a, a peacock or something. It's a human character. It should be played by a human actor. And that is not there. Well, you're referring to synthetic performers, they call them. Well, I don't call them performers. You can call them synthetic AI objects that look like humans. That has so much fallout. Not only are you taking jobs away from human actors, but if you're using that, object. You don't have a crew, most likely. You don't have dues being paid by that synthetic AI object. You don't have any initiation fees being paid by the synthetic object. And I know in the contract, it's uh, the agreement, it says that the AMPTP companies will give consideration. The word financial isn't even in there. 
what I saw it says appropriate consideration, if any. Now, if I'm a lawyer on the other side, in no way does that require me to give you money. Yeah. Well, they, they say it does. So just to be clear. Okay. If a SAG after a member is used in any way to create a synthetic performer, in their words, meaning an image of an actor is put into a computer model, amalgamated with other images of actors to create a synthetic replica, there is a consent and compensation requirement for those actors if the facial features like nose, eyes, ears are recognizable from that specific performer. And you say that is a hole you can drive a truck through. Find me a lawyer who would take a case where they've got to prove amongst billions of people on the planet and billions of people who have been on the planet, who are dead now, who have been filmed, you find me a lawyer who's going to prove that that nose is your nose. <laughs> I know there are only so many famous noses. Maybe Barbara Streisand. Yeah, Jimmy Durante. But even with that, <laughs> the amount of effort it would take to prove that that's yours because there are other people on the planet who look like that. Because don't forget, they haven't just scraped all the best movies and series in history. They've also scraped all the YouTube videos, everything, everything, everything. Right. Yeah. And for the rest of the synthetic performers, there's no consent and compensation. It's just notice. So you have to kind of say that you're using this stuff, but there's not an opportunity to bargain. Yeah. You don't even have to tell the audience you're using it. You just have to notify SAG. So they just send email after email after email after email saying, we're using it. We're doing it again. We're doing it again. We're doing it again. And I know there's a feeling that like maybe the consideration that's negotiated would deter them. But I'm like, they're not bound to any amount of not. And even if they do get money, where does that money go? That's not clear. What is the give for replacing the very members that you are representing, the human actors? I think where we are in technology now, the synthetic performer issue is not that big of a problem. I agree with you that we have no idea what's coming. And, you know, five, 10 years down the line, we could look back on this and be like, why did we allow this? The technology will advance to a place where you can populate a film with fake people and it looks and feels realistic. I don't think we are there yet. Every effort to do that that we have seen so far feels fake, feels uncanny valley, does not work. Here's the thing. The technology is here. I have a group called Credo 23 that's like an organic stamp for film. Just tells the audience that no generative AI was used. There's a page on that site called AI and Film that has a list of all the ways I believe generative AI is going to change the business. And there are hyperlinks to all these video demos. Now, these video demos are consumer-facing software. This is not even the high-level software that's available to studios that I'm sure we're going to hear deals that like Disney made a deal with OpenAI or something or NVIDIA to just have a model that only has been fed in Disney, 20th Century Fox films and all of this. So people should just go see what is already being used. Don't take my word for it. Look at the videos. So that's it. And then when you're talking about the digital doubles for actors who are in that film and all this, yes, of course, they're going to use generative AI here. It's like talking about just negotiating with a cannibal about, okay, so is it going to be the left foot or the right foot that you're going to cut off? And will you be grilling it or broiling it? And what kind of sauce? So it's, it's just such an odd conversation to be having anyway. Because any actor that I know who, who really is an actor and loves acting, 
wants to be on this, if it's second unit, it does pickups, it doesn't matter. They want to be there. And of course, for the bulk of the film, because that's acting. Yeah. Well, they also like to be paid, though. And this does allow them to be paid. But to be paid and then told bye-bye is not what most actors signed up for. It's disheartening. And I, I and it's a real dismissal of the art of of acting. Well, and on the employment-based digital replicas, there is a carve-out here for Schedule F actors. For those who don't know, those are more highly paid actors. I believe it's above 80000 on a film, and, and it's different for series. And Schedule F actors are excluded from this consent and compensation. I think because traditionally more of the higher paid actors have their own representatives to negotiate this language out of deals. But there is that middle ground where it's not a star, but it's also not a minimum person where they are potentially exposed being Schedule F and not having some of these protections. There are a lot of those because what Schedule F gives you is, you know, normally you hire somebody, you're paying them per day if it's a shorter run, you're paying them per week if it's a longer run. And sometimes you do the math and you're like, well, if we pay them per week and then, uh, you know, look at the overtime that's going to be there and other smaller payments you have to pay. And you do the math and you're like, ah, it's cheaper to just give them Schedule F. So yeah, what you're saying is true. There are a lot of people that get Schedule F that are not the George Clooney's and the Brad Pitt's of the world, of course. And they're not getting Schedule F either, by the way. <laughs> they're getting way over Schedule F. You know? I, I was going to say, you know, a lot of this is taken care of by entertainment lawyers who do have the leverage and the knowledge to get this stuff out of a contract. So to think that, you know, all of a sudden this deal is going to allow George Clooney's and Brad Pitt's to populate other movies, that's not the case because they will stand up to it. At least they'll have the leverage now to do that. So we're not talking about that. Mm -hmm. But I want to talk a little bit about background performers as well, because there is specific language about background performers. And it gives a little bit more leeway here to do more with background performers. Because haven't we just, we've been seeing football stadiums populated by digital performers for years. We've been seeing crowd scenes, the famous Lord of the Rings battle scenes. Half those orcs were computer generated. They're not guys in suits. So isn't this just an extension of that? And what do you think is the miss on the background digital replica rules? Yeah, everything you said is true. And I, not having worked as a background performer, I'm not as familiar with the ins and outs of the problems with existing contracts and what they wanted to add or correct. But when I read through it, the thing that I think is the status part is if you have a background performer and the background performer has been scanned and they do film A, and then they call the performer and say, you know, we've decided to give you a line. But you, now you've become a principal performer. And the background performer could go, oh, that's, that's great. Yeah, we're going to send you a check. That's, you know, the day rate for a principal performer versus a background performer. Oh, that's terrific. And guess what that background performer never gets to experience? Going on the set, being in the makeup room, getting made up, having this scene with maybe it's opposite Brad Pitt or George Clooney, and then having this absolutely memorable experience of being a principal performer on a set and exchanging lines with actors that they respect. And you've just erased experiences like that for them. That is an option now. And the consent requirement is tricky because consent can be obtained before you're cast in the role. 
And as you know, someone who's been through the acting process, the studios have maximum leverage when they are standing there with five to 10 actors who want the same role and a deal is put in front of you and it says sign it or you're not eligible for this role. And if there is AI language that we will own your digital replica and we can use it in subsequent sequels or in background scenes or whatever we want going forward, Duncan actually acknowledged that there's nothing in this deal that prevents this consent requirement being part of a test deal so that you waive all your rights or many of your rights before you even get the role. That just seems like a crime against humanity. <laughs> I, I don't... I mean, it, it doesn't seem great for actors. Put yourself in somebody's position that would have to live with a contract like that. I mean, I'm an independent filmmaker. Like, I'm not going to live with it. I'm never going to use generative AI. I'm never going to scan anybody for any of my projects. And think about this. It's not only on that particular project, but what kind of leverage do they have? Let's say they become more and more popular. What kind of leverage do they have going forward to be hired for a job, perhaps with that company? If the company just does the math and it's like, ah, it's so much easier to just throw them a chunk of money, then we don't have to fly them out here. We don't have to fly their nanny out here. We don't have to put them up in a hotel. We don't have to feed them. It's kind of like airplanes. Remember when the airlines used to, used to be able to check your baggage and take your bags on board and they'd feed you a meal and all this. And then they started going, you know how much money we'd save if meals were optional and the baggage was optional and all this. And now you get nickel and dime for where you're going to sit on the plane even. It's the same math they'll do with whether or not they want to hire a human actor. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm just going to go into the argument here. First of all, there's a logistical argument here that SAG-AFTRA can't stop technology. And every effort in the history of entertainment to prevent a technological innovation hasn't worked. And it really becomes a game of catch-up. And it seems that SAG-AFTRA has known this from the beginning. And at the outset of these negotiations, they were very clear. They're not trying to stop AI. They just want guardrails. And they want, more importantly, their members to be paid and to have agency over how this stuff is used. And they believe that, with exceptions, they have largely accomplished that. And the second logistical argument is that, what option do they have here? This was a strike that was testing the patience of a lot of these sister guilds and going on and on over hypothetical or potentially unsolvable AI issues was only going to 
lead to backlash and the guild essentially sacrificing other arenas where it could have made the gains that it did for this potentially non-problematic issue. That's at least the argument. I know you disagree with that. And that now this movement to vote no on the tentative deal would be catastrophic. That going back to the drawing board would sacrifice all the gains that were made over four months of negotiations and would turn the other guilds against SAG. Well, we don't we don't know that. I well, mean, that's maybe, a, that maybe is not. a possible scenario. That's a possible scenario, but it would certainly try the patience of a town that has been pretty patient with six months of strikes here to benefit two labor unions. And to go back and try to hold out on this issue that seemed like a non-starter. You know, these studios want to experiment with AI. They were willing to put up a fight and hold out as long as they did on this issue. And going back to square one with them would not benefit anyone. That's the argument. And I have never advocated for anyone to vote yes or to vote no. It's not. But you've said you're voting no. I'm not saying anything. Okay. I'm not saying how I'm voting at all. I'm saying here's how it will play out. That's been my position for nine months. I'm not important. The way I'm voting is not important. What's important is the members and understanding what is going to happen to them. So a couple of things about the whole AI thing. Sure, digital doubles and have some rules and consent compensation, all this sort of thing. WGA got a definition of a writer as a human. DGA got a definition of a, of a director as a human. I told Duncan, I think it would be a great idea for you to go in and get that same thing because they, why wouldn't that be given to SAG? For human characters. You have to use a human right, right. for these human characters. Not for orcs, okay? not for monsters. Now, by giving that away, things I told you about the financial impact on SAG for human members also don't need a set. And this would be akin to Teamsters allowing in their contract for self-driving trucks instead of them. It would be like the WGA saying it's A-OK for you to have ChatGPT author full screenplays and not hire us, just let us know you're doing it. Or the director is saying, yes, we have these minimum staffing rules, but it's A-OK if you use some sort of generative AI quote director in place of any of our human directors. That's what we're talking about. And that's what where I'm saying it goes too far. It go, That's beyond the pale to me. This is not a union that represents human-looking generative AI objects. This is a union that represents humans. And yes, even though this is all going to happen, and yes, these human-looking generative AI objects are going to be used by OpenAI and, and MidJourney and all these other companies, but at least you can carve out a lane for your members, your human members, a lane through which you are going to have employment. Aren't you at least a little bit sympathetic for these companies that are facing competition from pure generative AI companies to create realistic looking human figures that can be used? Like if the studios have their hands tied on this stuff and companies like NVIDIA or Name Your Startup are able to produce quality looking film and television using synthetics, doesn't that ultimately put Hollywood out of business? I don't think they're looking at this correctly. The studios and the streamers to some extent, but mainly the studios, 
have some competitive advantages that they are not taking advantage of. They have some assets. If they own the real estate that their studio is on, okay, that's an asset. The copyrights, that's an asset. That's a massive asset. Mm -hmm. Copyrights for all the films they've ever had. And their relationships with all these human actors. Sure, you're going to pay people, you're going to pay humans, you have to feed them and put them up and all of this thing. Yes, you're going to be a little more expensive. It's not going to be as cheap as just cranking out like Kleenex all AI films that these other companies are going to do. But why not take the opportunity to differentiate yourself? Why not, first of all, send all of your legal teams over to these generative AI models and go and say, I want to see a list of all the films you scrape. And if you got any of my copyrighted films in there, you're going to delete this whole training set. Yeah, that I agree with you on. So that's one of their assets. Poof, you might as well give away the land that they own. And then they're also giving away their relationships with the actors. Because you know what these other companies can do now? And now they have no competitive advantage. Now these other companies can not only do this, all AI films, a lot faster and a lot better than any of these studios, but they can also, if they wanted to, have some subsidiary that's a signatory and hire real actors too. Like they're just giving away what their competitive advantage was. And they did a similar thing with streaming, right? They started chasing what Netflix was doing. And how has that turned out? (laughs) And now they're going to chase what these massive amounts of money, by the way, these massive generative AI video companies, and they are going to lose because they can't compete with those guys on all AI films. They should instead just get back into making great films with humans. Well, in- until NVIDIA buys Paramount or something like that. But I, I... But they w- see, they will. <laughs> the minute they make a peep about their copyrights, all these places are just going to go, I'm sorry, how much are you? Yeah. Here's the money. Get out of my face. And all we're going to have left are independent filmmakers making human films. And by the way, now independent films are going to be able to make all these, quote, $300 million films because they're going to be able to use generative AI, too. I mean, the whole thing. All right. Yeah. Although that would be problematic if you, if, you know, a tech company bought a, a studio like that, you'd all of a sudden become a signatory like Amazon and Apple are now signatories of the AMPTP and, and the Guild. Mm, but maybe maybe they're not signatories. Maybe they yeah. just find actors who aren't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think the signatory business is going to be very robust in a couple of years. <laughs> wow. You, are, you definitely have a pessimistic view of this. So, all right. Hey, let's I'm say- just playing, really, Matt, though, mm-hmm. I'm not being pessimistic as much as I'm saying, how does it not go this way? This agreement will likely pass. So where are we in three years when it comes up again? What do you think is going to happen in the next three years on this front? I think we'll see a lot of AI, all AI films. From major studios? Not necessarily. I mean, they're a little slower. It's kind of like uh, comparing uh, anytime you have a company that's a little bulkier than, you know, people that can move faster, you know, with a couple of employees and a computer. It's going to be slower to like change things around and all this. So I think it'll probably come from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And then they'll be chasing that. And I think the only way in the next round of negotiations that there's any going to be any leverage is if all the unions could get on the same cycle and negotiate together. I don't even know if that's possible because I know uh, IATSE and uh, Teamsters are not on the same schedule as SAG, BGA, and WGA, but I don't know how you get any um, leverage otherwise. I don't think any single union is going to have leverage next time. I think it's going to be a Pixar-type situation where a company is going to come from the outside and create something that surprises and changes the paradigm. 
And everyone's going to look at it and think, oh my God, so this is the next thing. And it will be a completely AI-generated film. No unions involved at all. And then the studios are going to have to make a choice, whether you know perhaps they buy one of these companies like Disney bought Pixar. Now, Pixar used talent and everything traditionally. <laughs> they did not yeah. do this on their own, but they could have. They could have done it, gone completely outside the system, but they chose to have union talent involved. And I think it served them pretty well. But in the future, who knows? So I don't think you're far off, but I do think that the studios themselves are wary of the talent community and the potential backlash that would ensue if they started doing that stuff. So I think there's sort of a natural check on it. I know you're more pessimistic than I am. Uh, well, look, I think, and anybody who's been in the business for a while who's listening will know. A contract is not for when everybody is behaving properly. A contract is for contracts for when one or both parties lose their minds. So you if any loopholes, you can cross your fingers and hope they're not exploited, but there's a high chance they will be if they can be. And so you're you're taking a big risk. If you can live with what the fallout would be from loopholes and allowances, then go for it. If you can't live with that, then whatever particular contract you're about to sign is a bad idea for you. I get it. And Nobody's ever lost money betting on the cynicism of Hollywood executives. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, look, I, I love this business. I love this business. I love everyone who's called to it. It's just the name of the game. And you just got to suit up. And when you're negotiating contracts, you have to be aware of these kinds of things. I don't think anybody wants an all AI film. I don't think fans want it. I don't think actors, directors, but crew. they won't know. Like, yeah, they won't know, Craig. We're thinking about that in the terms of like what we think an AI film will look like. What if it's amazing? But I don't care if it's amazing. Nobody's going to want to see this movie if if everyone knows going in that there's not a single human being involved with this film. I truly believe that. I hear what you're saying. I mean, I feel the same way. They won't want to be tricked, right? That's kind of messed up. But I think they'll get used to it. We didn't go from like, this isn't like an audience that watches films from the, from the 1970s and then suddenly you're going to spring this on them. They've grown accustomed to like VFX, to, you know, kind of quote facelift, you know, that they do on a lot of these actors. And then the the filters that you got on TikTok and all this and all this plastic surgery and everything. And then, but you can't tell the difference. I've seen so many demos where I'm disturbed that I can't tell the difference. And I think audiences will just get used to it and just shrug their shoulders and go, well, this is what's going on. You know, there's no protections at old shows for face replacement or reskinning those actors. So the deal doesn't prevent people's faces from being replaced on old shows? I don't see any language like that. So that might be a great question for Duncan. I think this is going to happen. You want to repurpose like the Brady Bunch. And or let's you pick have- another show. How about Family Ties? A- anything. I mean, it could you happen to, to you. I have access to lawyers, but <laughs> l- let's say, but let's let's talk about people who have passed away. Even. Sure. You know, let's talk about like you know, I love Lucy or something. You want to repurpose that for you can tell by their viewing history that someone loves watching uh, comedies that have African Americans in them. Mm-hmm. So let's repurpose it and reskin everyone as an African American. And now, any of those actors get a say? There's, I don't see anything in the agreement that prohibits that kind of thing. Or face replacement. Let's say you're like, tonight I want to watch, you know, Star Wars and face replace my face. You know, me, Matt, I want to be Luke Skywalker tonight. I don't see anything that says that you can't face replace 
older actors. Well, they've done that. I mean, the Star Wars movies are already doing that. They did it with Carrie Fisher in Rogue One and the most recent one after she passed away. They made Luke Skywalker young in one of the Star Wars shows. But that's done with the consent and compensation of the original actors or their estates. So there's language about digital doubles, consent and compensation for that. But there's not, I don't see a mention of face replacing some fan's face on your body when they watch that episode tonight. I don't see any language that protects that. And I think we have an obligation to protect past work considering they did a lot of work to get, you know, conditions in our contracts that we walked into when we became members. And now they're not here to defend themselves. And now we're just going to let all of this just become like nothing's locked. Let's just put it that way. And that's a shame. I want John Hamm to star in everything that I've ever watched. So can we do that where there's just a John Hamm skin that appears as the star of every TV show that's ever been made? (laughs) Hey, if you can if you can think of it like the technology exists to make all your all your dreams come true, all your John Hamm starring (laughs) film dreams come true. Uh, All right. Thank you. You bet. Bye, guys. We are back with the call sheet. Craig, I'm betting you are a Hunger Games guy. I saw the movies. I may have even read a few of the books growing up. Yeah, I think it's like in your wheelhouse. Like it was the cool thing everyone was doing when you were in high school. I fell off, though, because what did they make? There was like Mockingjay Part 1 and 2. I don't think I saw those. I think I saw the first two and then that was enough. Yeah, the first one debuted to $152 million in 2012. Like, that's kind of insane for the first movie. But I guess the books were big and, you know, but Jennifer Lawrence was not a star. That kind of put her on the map. Yeah. So now we have the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which I did not have much confidence in because I gave it to Lucas in our draft. That was the one that I gave him beginning of the year. Now... I'm kind of regretting that a little bit. The, the tracking is 50 for this weekend, and I'm going to take the over on 50. The, the mm. tracking's kind of all over the place. Some have it at 45. Some go all the way up to 60. I think most have it at, at 50. I'm going to take the over. Yeah, I don't know. This is hard because is the audience, they want the, the millennials who loved Hunger Games to come back? Are they trying yeah. to go after a younger demographic with Rachel Zegler now, who's 22? And I think it's both. They want, you know, the women and some men who grew up with it to go back and see it. And they want young people like the cast. They've got Rachel Zegler, you mentioned, and like Hunter Schaefer from Euphoria is in it. But then they've got like some of the older actors, Viola Davis, Peter Dinklage also in it. This is not like they didn't just manufacture this. This is based on Suzanne Collins prequel book that she actually wrote. So it is canon, so to speak, in the Hunger Games universe. There's a lot of competition this weekend. You know, Marvel's is probably going to have a big drop, but it's still out there. And then there's a Eli Roth horror movie, Thanksgiving. And there's another Trolls movie, which I have seen. I've seen Trolls 3. I, uh, my kid loved it, but it's basically a Justin Timberlake biopic. <laughs> it's about like his old boy band coming back to haunt him. Oh. Um, it's supposed to do about 30 million. So there's a lot of competition this weekend. But I do think that this, there's enough juice in Hunger Games to get this over 50 million. The other thing about this movie is they got an interim agreement because it's Lionsgate, not a major studio. So they've been able to promote this thing for a few weeks now, which I do think matters. I'm skeptical. I'm very anti-prequel. I don't think they've ever worked. I think The Godfather 2 is, is the only prequel that has ever really succeeded. And oh, that's that like is a hot a take. No I don't think prequel? people like prequels. No, I don't think people like prequels. Now you're causing me to go back and think about a prequel that worked. 
it's the Godfather too, but again, that's like it's a before and after thing of young De Niro and older Pacino cut together. They don't work. Uh, nobody's interested in them. When you already know what the outcome is going to be in the future, when you already know where these characters are going, it is inherently less interesting. Uh, sure, but it could still be good. Isn't Temple of Doom technically a prequel to Indiana Jones? Yeah, and, but they don't market it as one. The Lost it's not, but it's not marketed as a prequel. No, it Nobody was not. knows that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I only learned that after the fact. Yes. Um, and also, Temple of Doom was not as good as Raiders, but it was decent. It also has the same actors. Usually prequels have different characters. The Temple of Doom is it's still Indiana Jones. Right. So that means you're not bullish on Wonka either. We don't have to talk <laughs> about not. that yet. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> you not. and I are going to go to Wonka. We will see it together. <laughs> and I, I listen, I have heard that it is good. Theater owners liked it when they showed it at the Show East conference a couple weeks ago. The tracking is actually pretty good. So I'm I'm prepared to eat it on Wonka. But I'm more bullish on Hunger Games. We'll see. Rachel Zegler, like, do we think she matters as a star? Like, it's kind of tough following Jennifer Lawrence's footsteps on this stuff, but is she meaningful? I don't know. I think that's what this movie will tell us. Exactly. Just like Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, it's one thing to star in West Side Story. It's another to, like, be the next Jennifer Lawrence in Hunger Games. So we'll see if this movie does well. Then good for Rachel Zegler. All right, that's the show. I want to thank my guest, Justine Bateman. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck, our editor, Justin Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you next week. Thank you.